Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Brendan, welcome to the show. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. It's the first yeah, time I've met another Brendan. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two Brendans on the one podcast. So now the, the expectations are high. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's literally the first time I've met another Brendan in my almost 40 years. Really? Of, yeah, yeah. I've never wow. met. I've never met another Brendan. So. Yeah, I guess I need def- like a, more Brandons in that yeah. kind of thing that I need. I have met another. I went to an elementary school with another Brendan, so yeah. <laughs> and we have different spelling. I'm O N and you're A N. Yeah, so. I'm sure you get to answer that question all the time too. So is that with an A or? <laughs> all all I know is my mom told me it's an Irish name. That's about as much as I know. <laughs> yeah. That's the information I have as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us today on the Founder Pack podcast. How is your week going so far? Anything uh, you want to share with us that you think is relevant for other founders, seeing as though you're interacting with a lot of that community? Well, I mean, we're going to be talking about the founder-led sale, but I think um, something, let's see, top of mind. Well, we're, we're sitting right now, we're recording this, this Monday, the 21st of November in 2022. Uh, and, you know, there's sort of the economy has, has, it's not in the, I mean, it depends who you talk to, but there, there's some like, like, let's say waves out there and just more and more, I think it's, um, it's the stuff we'll talk about today, but it's just so important to figure out why a, why your product is a must have and B to continue to evolve your go to market motions. Cause I was literally just before this podcast talking to the CMO of a of a large tech company, and she's talking about how so many of the approaches they were using two or three years ago have just decayed in their effectiveness now, and they're they're having a lot of trouble because like all this content that they were really relying on to be the 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 engine of all their leads and so forth, it's not working anymore, and obviously it puts a lot of pressure on. Okay, well, what do we do now? <laughs> you know, because uh, you got to keep hitting the number. So th- those are two things that are top of mind for me right now. Yeah, and maybe it's a good idea to spend a couple of minutes just to kind of bring in your frontline knowledge about the recession, how it's impacting early stage startups. We could probably dovetail into our main topic of today, which is building a go-to-market engine. Yeah, sure. So how the recession is affecting early stage uh, companies I would say, well, I mean, there's some of the things that are that are obvious, like in a macro level, there's funding can be harder to come by. Um, the I am seeing just with buying cycles generally, there's there's more wait and see from companies, especially where something isn't seen as mission critical. But I think um, there's still a lot of opportunity out there. I still see, you know, a company I work with um, just finished their A last Friday, I think. Um, and this was, you know, getting done in the middle of all that's happening right now. Valuation was fine. It wasn't ridiculous like last year's valuations, but you know, that's okay. They're growing. They're in the game. They're doing their their thing. Um, and I think 
the making sure that you have a product that solves a problem for a clear persona who has a clear job to do and that you're selling it based on a solution to that problem and that that problem is something that really matters. It's not just, oh, I'm going to incrementally save you a little bit of time. I'm going to incrementally, you know, that, that those kinds of offers, especially if people don't see it as their core job, they're just, they're getting tabled right now because there's just too much other stuff going on. So it's, it really comes down to this cliche, having a vitamin versus a headache pill. Yeah, exactly. That That's exactly it. But it's a, some cliches are cliches for like good reason, right? And that's like, to me, that's like a very relevant uh, um, cliche. Like it's, it's I, I would call it a maxim even beyond a cliche. Like it's, it's, it's the truth, you know, it's, it's the truth. Are you seeing any verticals doing better than others? Or does it, again, come down really to the, the problem that you're solving? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to have to pause to think about that for a second. So there's, there's verticals that are like more immune to this, but I think it, it's, it's very individual, I guess, is the, is the thing I would say generally. Like you can look at healthcare, for example, as a sector and say, okay, well, they're, they're not, okay, they, they've had a ton of financial challenges from COVID, right? They are less immune to exactly what's happening right now, but also the right facilities are still very much investing and some are not. And so I can look at, um, you know, in, in the enterprise sector, I see the same thing. So I, I, I guess if I was going to like give up a, a message rather than like, is there a particular place to focus? I would just say like, be really clear about who you can help, how you can provide value and just make, be like, be relentless about being in front of those, those right people right now, because there's still business getting tra transacted, deals getting done and um, there's opportunity. So I think without any further ado, maybe you should quickly introduce yourself and just share with our audience a bit about you and your background and what you're up to these days. Sure. Uh, so my name is Brendan Dell. I run a company called Tech Accelerator, which is a go-to-market accelerator for early stage B2B SaaS companies. Uh, I've also spent a lot of time uh, studying messaging and positioning. That's where a lot of my early work is um, because I think those two topics are really causal in um, how you create effective go-to-market. Um, I've seen it again and again that the people, you know, just sort of don't, don't give that um, the credence that it's due and it creates a lot of waste and inefficiency. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for like a decade. I've worked with more than 100 companies now. Um, my podcast is called Billion Dollar Tech. For those interested in, in tech and founders, uh, we speak with founders of, uh, you know, billion dollar uh, companies in the enterprise space and try to learn what we can from those folks about what's worked for them and, um, you know, apply those lessons. I'm excited to hear from you, from your experience, how to get past this founder-led sales into scaling a go-to-market engine. So first of all, like, what does it take to build a scalable go-to-market engine? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, I guess let, let's start at the beginning, which is to say, when sh when should you and what are some of the principles that, that should like inform that? Uh, first of all, this is not going to be something surprising to any founder, but as you're building a business, you, you know, you need to really adopt a systems thinking mentality as quickly as you can. 
your limits as an individual. Um, you hit them very quickly and it's tempting, you, you know, like every business scales, scales to the capacity of the leadership. So, uh, you know, thinking of your go-to-market as a system with inputs and outputs and not just as like, you know, a salesperson or a marketing campaign is going to, um, that, that's really step one. Uh, so when, when should you start to think about scaling your, your go-to-market? Uh, there's a lot of information out there kind of like that I think that really encourages to have their founders to have their hands in all baskets for a long period of time at the beginning. I think there's a lot of great utility to that pre-product market fit. And for the purposes of like product market fit is an evolving thing. It's a moving target. It's not like one day you wake up with product market fit and you think, you know, oh my goodness, like, you know, I can't like it, 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 it doesn't generally happen that way, but like essentially do you have some clarity around like are you selling the product are people getting some value and are there more of those people out there that you can start to communicate with if yes then that's a good time to start thinking about moving beyond the founder-led sale if you just have this thing and you're like in a closed beta um and you're not sure if people would pay for it right they've told you like all your investors referrals told you the thing is cool but nobody's giving you money in exchange for the thing yet then it's, you know, you need to have some more conversations first. Sorry if I'm interrupting. One, no, please go. One thing that <laughs> I'm curious to hear from you as a marketing leader or a sales leader or a founder, you're getting like lots of information coming from investors, employees, everyone bringing in their ideas. How do you go about focusing the company to be like, hey, we're only so many people and we need to focus because like your investors will be like, Hey, our portfolio is doing this and they're doing that. And you know what? Yeah, for sure. Totally. Yeah. First of all, that's, um, it's hard. It's ubiquitous. So like, if this is something you're experiencing, this happens to everyone. Well, you, you can't, as you said, you're on limited resources. You can't boil the ocean. So this is actually a topic that comes out a lot in on billion dollar tech and, it's this, you know, it, it's this skill that you have to like, th this is an unsatisfactory answer, but like, you really have to get good at like having, um, what's that phrase? Like strong opinions, loosely held, you know, that, that you really, you have a vision, but you still are willing to, to hear from other people, but then you have a strong enough sense of vision and what you're trying to do that you can filter and have enough confidence in yourself to say like, nope, that doesn't apply right now uh, and move on. And the reason I brought it up was because to me, it feels like how can you get to that scalable engine if you're throwing so many different campaigns and tactics and approaches against the wall and hoping something will stick? I feel like you won't be able to learn. I mean... Maybe it's counterintuitive because if you throw a lot of things against the wall, maybe you'll learn faster. But if you throw a lot of things against the wall with like 1% inertia, then I'm not sure you will. So that's kind of why I yeah. brought it up. So that, that's a super um, astute observation. It's 100% the case. And that's one of the big things I actually see that, that sort of um, sabotage early stage founders is that you know, the experiment you run today has a, has a, a, a lagging timeline to realization. So if you start running ads today, it's, yeah, you might be able to start to see some click detail or whatever, but 
So I just, on that call before this, um, the average enterprise buyer looks at 27 pieces of content. And this is like downloaded content before they buy uh, or before they enter a buying cycle rather. So you really can't measure this stuff like on a short term. You have to let it extrapolate out over one or two buying cycles, however long that is for you. And so the ability to be focused in how you experiment is really important because people, I, I was, I worked very briefly with a founder last year who, um, he turned on paid ads. He, he literally the next day, um, had, he'd gotten one lead, whatever there that closes or not. Right. But it, <laughs> he'd gotten this one lead, but then he's like, Oh, I, I don't know. This isn't going to work. And it's like, it's literally been 24 hours and you, this is, you can't operate on those kind, you know, be aware, but you can't operate on those time timelines. How much should marketers and sales leaders educate either the founders or the team about the nature of people's buying habits? Because it's rapidly changing, as I'm sure you can speak to. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. I, I think it starts with, so first of all, I, th I think you need, like as a founder, you need to understand what goes into, what what like what does a scalable engine look like? And let's not even talk about like from 10 to 50 million, you know, right? Like what gets you from like one to 10, right? Like the, like the, the, the earlier stages and you basically, and, and so this loop, it stays the same as you get bigger, but your leadership structure looks different. And so your involvement gets different. So you can really think about an engine, like a go-to-market engine in five parts. You have a foundation. I mean, you can almost think about this like a, like a pyramid you've got. A, st a strategy sitting underneath the whole thing, which is something that people frequently skip. And the strategy says, who is our ideal customer, right? With specificity, what are their jobs to be done? How are we positioning to be different? And then what is the result we're going to deliver for these people? Then you've got demand creation sitting on top of that, which means how are you going to now go out to the market and at scale, create a customer who comes in, right? Like, um, People come in wanting Kleenex. They're not looking for just tissues. They want Kleenex, right? And that's the same thing happens in the enterprise. People don't come in looking for uh, call recording. They want Gong. They already think Gong is the thing that they want. So you have to create that demand. The third piece is the system of demand capture, which means all these people now are aware of you, aware of your difference, aware of how you can help them. Now you conversion rate optimize to effectively bring those people in your, into your ecosystem. The fourth piece, piece, piece of it is sales Rocky optimization. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is sales optimization. This is where most people start, and it's the wrong place. The big mistake a lot of companies make is they're like, "All right, well, let's get an early, like a junior marketer or a junior salesperson. Let's throw them out there and see what they can bring back." Of which they are always disappointed. Because they're not sure who to call. They're not sure what to say. They're not sure why it's valuable. All of this stuff needs to be documented. And also, and then the ability to sell these warm leads that are coming in, it's a hell of a lot easier, right? You don't need to, like, they already know it all. And then finally, the success engine sits on top of that customer success, right? So if you're an early stage leader, being able to say, hey, this is what we're optimizing for right now. And we're going to have the patience to see this piece through. That's how you can keep the, you know, the org focused on what are we trying to do right now um, and uh, 
give them that clarity and that assurance without having to, you know, constantly be having the same conversations and know that any exitable business period has these systems in place. So it's going to take, you know, it's, it's going to have to build them. Would you say that a lot of these growing pains could be solved by the marketing and sales plan for the quarter or for the next six months, whatever it is? If, if it's a year, I don't know what your recommendations are on how far out to build your plans. But do you think like that could help align and kind of push back any deviations? I mean... I, I believe marketing plans should be guardrails. They don't necessarily have to be written in stone, but I, I think they can help to at least kind of guide the company backed up through data and buy-in before we go and execute the plan. So I guess this could be a prerequisite to building your go-to-market engine. I think it's useful early on. I mean, gen it's always this way, but especially early on to just think of everything in terms of a hypothesis. And so you're, you're creating a strategy that says, okay, um, I'm selling a piece of software to finance leaders at growth stage technology companies. And what we, they, these people have the following jobs that they need to accomplish that are problem problematic for them. So we've created an automated FP and a tool that gives the following benefits. Um, and then in order to drive awareness and start to bring in some early stage leads, here's the two or three things we're going to do to create that early stage demand and have enough conversations to verify that A, this is a problem and B, we have a solution that's you know commercial. Um, I think the planning cycle can become cumbersome because it, you want the plan to become... You, you want to know the result, like a plan is really, you know, like you want to know the result of the plan. And then that becomes the discussion. Well, what do you think this is going to drive? Which is really an indication of lack of trust between the two parties. Um, when of course you, you know, one as a marketer, then you cannot tell me what it's going to drive. You can make hypotheses, but you cannot answer that without historical data. And uh, the CEO or founder really just needs to get purposeful directed action in the market. Cause that's the only way you get answers to your questions. And if you're being measured on pipeline and revenue, is the plan to get as close to that as possible? Because most uh, functional heads today are being measured, at least in sales and marketing, on pipeline and revenue. So if we're talking about getting getting beyond the founder-led sale and those early hires, I think it's fine to put stakes in the ground. But if you don't have any historical information to say, hey, we've been creating opportunities from this channel at this rate over a prolonged period of time for this cost and they're converting at X, you know, at Z rate into actual revenue, you really have no place to give somebody a pipeline or revenue goal. It's, it's by definition made up. So, um, I mean, and they always are to a degree, right? You're always forecasting into the future, but especially early. So better to just get in sync about what are the outstanding risks and questions and how do we start to put this system in place and move quickly toward getting those questions answered and getting those conversations happening versus like, you know, are you hitting this number that we pulled out of the clear blue sky? From the companies that you work with, what are some of the channels that you see building up to that scalable 
engine like are there some common channels yeah. that are helping to to get the company in a position where they can start doubling down and having some predictability and building an engine so these aren't exactly channels but the where I would start is one, you've got this clarity of positioning, right? So you, you start there and you say, who are we for? How do we help? And how is it different? And within that, you buy it, you, you have this, a point of view, right? On this, why is this, why does this like function need to, you know, let's take the finance example. How has finance changed? Why is it important to have an automated FP&A tool? What is the imperative for these leaders to be successful in the new world, right? Like you have an opinion. So the things that I see most successful is one, effective content two, effective uh, clarity around, you know, segmentation. And then three paid advertising and then advertising is the wrong word, but paid media to get this point of view in front of people in an awareness. And like, we won't go all the way down into the weeds of how to set this stuff up right now. I mean, we, we can, if you want, but like there, there's a way to set these campaigns up on, let's say a LinkedIn, because that's one of the best place for negative native targeting. If you're going to do B2B, where you're now telling this story in a very methodical way um, against a very clear set of target accounts um, and in a market that's large enough to give you good early, you know, uh, TAM, but not so big that there's no way you can generate, you know, meaningful awareness with that. <laughs> you know, you pick 2 million accounts and you raised a few million dollars on a seed round, not going to generate awareness with 2 million companies, right? Um so those are the the like the kind of the pillars of how I would think about starting to set this up. It makes perfect sense. We're going through this exercise ourselves uh, currently. I'm curious, what do you see as like a sweet spot number of accounts for like a small team? Yeah, that's okay. So the answering that question is okay. There's two sides to that. There's the marketing side, which is how many accounts are we going to target? And there's the sales side. Like if there isn't sufficient inbound volume and we want this SDR going uh, outbound, you know, how many people should be in their pipeline? It's a, it's a tough like off the cuff answer, but I can say from a targeting perspective on like a LinkedIn, you really want to have at least 20,000 contacts that you can be targeting within a given uh, campaign. You might have some overlap in terms of accounts. I would say up to 50 is like a good sweet spot for that initial um, build. And then depends on how you set up the motions from there for the salesperson. You really should be able to get like a meaningful number. Like you should be able to keep that SDR mostly full on inbound off, a, off of a list that size. But if they need to go outbound as well, then it starts to become a conversation of what tech do you have in place? Like, are you looking at intent? Are you looking at you know, like what's the best way to repurpose that time. But you're not going to have anybody meaningfully cover more more than like 100 accounts plus take inbound uh, from there. That sounds about where we are. We're Good. looking at yeah. about 50, 50 accounts and trying to see how we can turn that into an account-based program based off an event that we attended. Some of the struggles that we're having is like, how do we engage with, the people that we didn't meet at the event. So we can follow up with the people that we met, hoping that they're going to be warmer. But then what are some best practices around ABM when you're trying to get the attention of the other folks in the buying cycle without looking like you're going behind the back <laughs> of the person that you met at the event? So this comes down to the pyramid, essentially. 
Like the question would be, first of all, do you feel like you have clarity of positioning um, and benefit and you can articulate that well? So like, let, let, let's, let's do it, right? Like what, 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 what do you, what, what do you sell and um, what is it and how does it help people? So, you know, we're constantly iterating on the message, but essentially the product is a continuous disaster recovery solution for Okta. We sell only to Okta users and that's our ideal customer the practitioner who's working with Okta, and then the buying cycle would be like the CIO, uh, the CISO. It really depends in B2B based on the the size sure. of the company, which is another challenge you have to understand when doing your account-based mapping. Like, okay, who are the ideal customers within one to with within a thousand to five thousand employees? And does it change according to the vertical? So there's a lot of like moving parts. So is continuous disaster recovery uh, a new concept, a new paradigm, or an established category? Meaning, is it a brand new thing that nobody... I'm, I'm not defining this for you, but for anyone who's listening who's unfamiliar with the terms. Yeah, it's a new category. Are you the only one who's taking that position right now? Continuous disaster recovery? Yes. Are there other people? Yes, okay. we're first to market and we're hoping to start owning certain terms and and language and verbiage. So you've got the, if you go then, if we feel like we've got, and you're taking the right approach that you're doing this in an iterative basis, that if we take the approach that, okay, we have some clarity around who we are and how we help, the next question is, um, how do we create demand around that, right? Second pillar. So the question of how do you re-engage people that you didn't talk with at the event it's, do you have content that it's evangelized? So like, what's the problem with the status quo, right? If you're going to create a new category, there has to be a point of view that the way you're solving, so a new concept, again, just to define those terms for anyone who's listening, a new concept is this idea that it's an entirely new solution. It's not something people have heard of before. There's no budgets in place. They may not even know that there's a problem. A new paradigm is retooling an existing process. It's something like how Salesforce said, hey, um, you, there's already Siebel CRM, which is on-premise, but we're cloud-based CRM. Uh, or you, you, know, you can see many examples of new paradigm in, in SaaS and established categories, anything that's a commodity where there are many of them um, all competing on the same term, like all you know, just CRMs now. And so how you bring those individual kinds of solutions to market are different. But the, so for you, the challenge becomes then, how are we going to educate around what's this villain, right? So Salesforce said no software, right? The villain being you've got you've got this on-premise thing that's expensive and you can't keep up with it and so on and so forth. So it's not a question of how do you re-engage the people who didn't uh, you know, talk with you. It's how do you create a system of, of creating demand that's so robust that these people know who you are, know what your point of view is. So when they start evaluating this problem, they come to you already believing you're the answer to their problem, which is unsatisfactory because it's a longer term play, but it's the, it's the, uh, play that is effective because you can be busy all day taking demos. That sounds nice for your investors, but it doesn't turn into money. And this is something I see a lot. Yeah, I love that response. I hundred percent with you. <laughs> so, do do you notice a decrease in the sales cycle through this approach of like educating the buyer 
through content on social versus going after them cold? Where do you see the benefits? Yeah, so it's across the whole, so there's, there's a couple things here. Is the sales cycle shorter? The sales cycle is not going to be shorter at first, right? Because you, there's this period of uh, indoctrination, for lack of a better word, right? Where people are going to you know, have to hear about you and agree with you and build that relationship of trust, which happens over time. But as it starts to work, what you'll start to see is people will come in saying things like, oh, I totally agree with you guys about disaster recovery. Like they want to see your stuff but they already believe you're the right solution for them. And so they don't come in in the same way that's like, hey, we need disaster recovery and you know, we're, you're one of six people and we know it costs about this much. So how much is it for you guys? You know, like like a hiring a gardener, right? You call a gardener, it's like, okay, I want my lawn cut. How much are you going to charge me to cut the lawn? You know, and because this guy said 100, will you do it for 100? You know, whatever the numbers are, you, you want to get away from that commoditization. And so- that's what this approach does over time. Uh, what else you'll see is that by doing this, you're avoiding the the race to the bottom on price, and you're already coming yes. in as the chosen vendor. Okay, now we just should not screw up. Yeah, and so there's actually a lot of research around this. There's a, a study called "The Long and the Short of It" by uh, Field and Binet, who they they study B two B marketing effectiveness. Um, and basically what they found is campaigns that optimize for fame or is what's most effective versus like direct response versus, you know, the, these other, um, elements. And what, what that really comes down to is the, the notion that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, right? You're the leader. We see you as the leader in this space. So, uh, you know, we trust that you can solve this problem for us. And so that's what you're trying to do in a way that you are going to like, if there's only 5% or 3% of your market that's actively looking for solutions right now, and you just sales send salespeople out there canvassing, you by definition are finding people who are not in a buying cycle and don't have that problem right now. And so you're spending all this time trying to say, well, maybe we can convince them, right? Maybe we can show them this problem like today and get them to like, but that's just not how human nature works. And it's certainly not how enterprise buying cycles work. There was some research done by a team called Play Bigger was the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now they have another team called Category Pirates. And they did some research from when they first started doing this category design work, I think in 2008. And like 10 years later, they found that all the category leaders were taking roughly 76% plus of the market share, um, yep. which comes back to our discussion about doing the long, hard work early on because the dividends it's going to pay down the line. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to, to kind of agree with that and then add one additional thought, which is, you know, what you guys are doing is saying continuous disaster recovery. So disaster recovery is a thing that people are aware of. And then you're modifying it by saying continuous, and that's your new category. And I think that that well, is even, often... even to add to that, we're taking it from the traditional backups and we're bringing it to the SaaS world with critical SaaS apps. Your critical SaaS applications, just because they're in the cloud doesn't mean they're backed up and you'll be able to restore them in case of a disaster, a cyber attack or human error. So it's not just the, the disaster recovery per se, but it's also the fact that we're 
moving into a new era with digital transformation. And now that is SaaS and cloud. Yeah. And I think, see, that's smart what you guys are doing. And it, I, I bring this up to say like, so Drift did, con you know, if you're in sales and marketing at all, like Drift said conversational marketing, and that was the, the category they created. And there was nothing, you know, that, that, that didn't mean anything until they gave it meaning. That can be very effective. It's also, it's, it's the hardest thing to do, right? To take something that means nothing to people and make it mean something. So I think for many people, if you're going to create a category, it's how can you modify like FP&A, automated FP&A, right? How can you take something that is and, and modify it slightly versus like really just coming up with an entirely new phrase that nobody understands? I see this a lot right now with like these um, HQ plays, like I just, Kinetic is one that's doing it for like the HQ for chief people officers. It's essentially analytics, right? But anyhow, it's just, you know buyers sort of know what time it is with a lot of this stuff, you know? So you just have to be careful about like getting too, too left of center where people have no idea what you mean. And then it's really hard to, to get that early, you know, early. Training. Coming back to the founder led sales discussion, like what is your definition of founder led sales? Should you take it literally, or is it founders just play a part in the business development piece of getting to yeah. scalable engine like wh where does the founder fit in where do you see them having the best impact and then like what can they sort of hand over and where should they focus their time after this so a lot one of the, the traps that i see happening a lot is that the initial traction comes from networking maybe some social stuff referrals from investors which is all fine right that should happen but it's not scalable and then once you do start to do those things, the founder is usually, or co-founders, they're subject matter experts of some kind. Either, like to take your example, maybe they came out of disaster recovery, or maybe they built a you know a sale piece of like sales software and they came out of sales, or they, they built you know finance software and they came out of finance. So when they go and they sell to that same buyer, right? Like I'm a CIS, I'm a former CISO and I created some security software they speak CISO. So they can get, they can kind of listen and tailor, right, in a way that is a non-scalable function as you go. So they get stuck because they either get stuck on demand side, they're not creating enough demand, or they get stuck on conversion side, they're not having the right conversations turn into money because they're sort of the linchpin in the whole thing. So this is why you say, where are they uh, most effective? It's one, being the subject matter expert at scale, meaning creating the content that shares the point of view, and B, documenting um, the, you know, the process that they're walking people through and teaching it to someone else so that they can do the sales calls. And they're never going to close at the same rate as a founder. But, you know, that's, that's how you grow. So the founder should help marketing kind of build out the stories, the content? Should the founder take the stage in the beginning more than the company would like because there's no one else to really replace him as the thought leader? Or are there creative ways of sharing his voice amongst the company? Yeah, I think, you know, to the how long should he or she be like the face like that, that's a sort of, um, I, I think that the, 
the critical thing there is that, so what a lot of companies get wrong with content is that they, they share uh, BS, basically, right? Non-interesting, non-unique, uh, Googled stuff, right? And so no one, by definition, cares. So they should be the center of that thought leadership for the period of time it takes to bring in someone else who has a credible authority who can pick that up, like user testing as a company that I worked with um, for a long time. And they, their, you know, if their founders all came out of that side of things, UX and, and product development and so forth. And then they, um, Janelle was her name, like over time, uh, she became like the, you know, the, the expert essentially, right? Like she really was known by that industry and was everywhere sharing best practices and really had a unique point of view that was valuable um, that she could share with that, that business. So that, and this doesn't need to be hugely um, taxing for the founder. You come up with, okay, like what is your strategy? Then what are your content pillars? And then what are all the questions that people have underneath this? Then one hour a week, sit with the founder, get them to answer questions in a concise way, cut that up into video, write posts for them, and then run paid against your TAM in an awareness campaign to expose people to that uh, early stage content. And now all of a sudden your founder is educating your whole market at scale. And you're, by the way, building retargeting pools that you can use for conversion offers as you build this out. Quick follow-up on that. What is your take on building out great content, but your website is not yet up to scratch? Like you're working on the website. It's going to take a few months to to get the new positioning, the branding, etc., the conversion rate optimized. Do you recommend companies still go and put that spend on LinkedIn and spend thousands of dollars branding and creating awareness? Or should they do it organically until their website is kind of more up to scratch and then turn on that beginning of your go-to-market engine with your content and with LinkedIn and paid behind it? I've worked with more than 100 companies at this point. I have yet to meet a company that felt like their website was in a good place, like categorically. <laughs> Nobody ever thinks it's done. So what I would I, say is, yeah, I mean, like if your website is your old website is kind of talking a different language because you have a homepage, yeah. right? Like get, get a landing page up there that says, what is this thing? How, who is it for? How does it help? And what is the unique result it creates? You can do that in an afternoon, you know, do something simple and start getting demand. They, people are going to want to, you know, get them to talk to a human being and have those conversations, you're going to learn a lot more that way. And uh, obviously you want, you know, over time, you want your web, your website to be like your best salesperson and to be educated in the market and all those good things. Um, but that that's what I would do. Yeah, because time is not your friend. Maybe you have different numbers, but this content driven approach can take months before you start seeing the inbound return. It's very different from like, if you're doing uh, Google paid ads for a commoditized product, you can start seeing the results, you know, within an hour. But when you're creating a new category, educating it takes much more time. So I guess the, so there's no time like now. Here's the other thing I would say, like, okay, so say, say you're going to bid against, let's say you're going to do disaster recovery keyword terms, right? And you're going to go out and you're going to 
So if there's if there's leaders in that space that people are looking for, I would really look at what you're, and if you can do this, great, right? But like if it turns into money, but look at your trailing revenue and look at, are you really getting the right, like, yes, you you may get the blinking light that says like, oh, we got a, a form complete or we got, you know, a lead on LinkedIn, but like, is it the right person? Is the conversation substantive? Is it turning into money? I think there's that feeling. It's like making cold calls. It's a feeling like we're doing something. We're busy, you know, so this must be good. We're busy. Um, but is it getting you the result? And, you know, if you can get the right people uh, in a buying cycle who turn into money, right, and aren't already defaulting to some other buyer from Google, you should do that. But most companies that are trying to do some new paradigm, you know, or new concept play, like the, it, it doesn't work because they come, they're, they're on Google with some expectation of what they're already looking for, right? They're on Google thinking it should cost this much. It should work this way. I should use a company like this and so forth. So anyhow, that I would just say to, to make sure you have that information um, because you may not be producing the outcome that you think you are despite busy. And I think to what you said earlier, you should also understand where the different channels are playing in your go-to-market strategy. For example, Google pay-per-click, I feel it's more of that capturing demand stage. Once you've already built your brand, your category, you've built the demand. Now you're harvesting that demand because people know now to search for SaaS disaster recovery or you know, continuous access, continuity, whatever category language you you created. Now it's a search yeah. term, but you first have to go and build demand before you can capture it. I see you want sure. to add something before we put a, a bow on that topic. Oh, I, I was just going to say that you could spend six months building out a whole strategy to try to bid on, you know, your competitors and all of these things that are supposedly going to get you these quick wins that don't actually net out the way that you think that they will. And so, yes, there is a lag time between these, you know, the, these like starting to create the demand, but it's just the same way that when you're building a product, you know, you wouldn't say, Hey engineer, I've got this idea for a product, like get me a continuous disaster recovery ser service by this Friday. Like that's an obviously it's, it's, it's an unrealistic um, result, you're going to have to build the thing. And that's what, you know, you, to, to commercialize the innovation, now you're going to have to have that lag. So I wanted to come back to something you said in the first couple minutes of the show. You said you've been speaking to lots of founders in the last weeks or whatever, and you had discussions about all the old playbooks of go-to-market engines that are not working anymore. Can you share a little bit about what some of those things are and what you've been advising? And if you, if we've discussed it already, that's fine. We can move on quickly. I think it's just around what content marketing means. And it's, you know, there's been this playbook in SaaS for a long time that you write an ebook, you gate it, you drive traffic to it, you capture an email, that email gets a drip sequence and some follow-up phone calls. And, you, you know, that's what you call a lead and that's what you call, a, you know, an, a sequence. But even what you're really trying to do is create a customer, right? You're trying to create a buyer, someone who knows who you are, 
knows what's unique about you, agrees with your point of view, and then wants to do business with somebody like you. And so an ebook is a perfectly fine place to like get capture that information, but then you need to be distributing in a way that's true to how people actually consume information now, which is in sound bites, on social, you know, in all the places where they already go. And it's a hard pill to swallow because you don't get that blinking light the same way. But that's what I'm seeing a lot is that people who are heaven, heavily reliant on these old school demand gen waterfalls of like, okay, we created MQL. Like you don't need that contact information, right? The contact information is all out there. Like go get a Zoom info subscription or whatever. Yeah. yeah we even did a test a couple of years ago. We emailed people in Zoom versus having them download our ebook got the exact same results. So, yeah, you know, yeah. sales can go and do the cold calling, the list building themselves. They don't need marketing for that. Like let marketing go and build and create demand, like you said. Well, if you think, like, I, I think that we like take our, for for all of the, the, you know, these incredibly bright folks out there, I think sometimes we, we move away from like thinking critically about what we're trying to do. Like th- think about the last time you bought something that was from a cold source, you know, maybe you saw, you know, maybe you saw an ad, you looked at the thing, then you went away, then you saw a different ad and a third and a fourth, and then you went to a conference and then you talked to your friend and your friend told you about it, you know, and fast forward nine months and then you actually go and have a conversation with somebody. That's like really what it looks like. Um, And so you, you know, you have to approach like a lead, you're just you're trying to find a person who has buying intent based on a set of solutions. It's not just to have, you know. But again, th- these are hard things, and investors like sometimes they they like the numbers, right? And so you know, you play the game how you have to, but you need to game for your outcome. The last question before we wrap up here: When to hire leadership versus junior employees versus do this yourself? I think you have to be super specific about what you're trying to solve for at a given time. Because I think, you know, you just said it well, like generally people like take three approaches to try to get past this founder-led sale. They, there's either they try to experiment their way out of it. They try to hire some sort of senior leadership, right? And think that they're going to solve that problem. Or they bring on someone junior with the expectation that they're going to do a bunch of stuff and, and things will sort of net out. The experimenting approach has its obvious challenges, right? It's it's time consuming, it's it's resource intensive, and there's really there's really no good practical reason, in, in my opinion, to reinvent the wheel if you have the resources to to get some help to you know to just answer the question. The senior leadership thing, most of the time, if you're really so, I'm going to put senior leadership in quotes for many people, right? Like. A VP can mean a lot of things. And if you're really getting someone senior, what you're really hiring is someone who is managing a function, right? Like that is a person who knows how to grow a marketing department or grow a sales department. So if you're early, you really need to optimize and figure out how do I find that zero to one talent that can tell me what we should do and in what order and how to do it, because that's a very different skill set than I'm going to grow this marketing org to however many people, right? Or grow, scale the spend. And then the junior person, I think that can be an effective way to go, but you just need to be prepared to tell that person what they should do. Because for the most part, you're going to have the same challenges as experimenting that they're going to not know where to go, what to do. 
and they're going to spend a lot of time trying to answer the questions for themselves. So you just need to have clarity over what you be able to put a box around what you want them to do. Like I see people all the time, they hire someone junior and they're like, okay, I want you to get some ads going. And then here's a list. And I want you to send some emails out also and like send some LinkedIn messages and see if you can get any leads that way. And you get the predictable thing, which is a bunch of, you know, random, <laughs> random activities that, that don't, um, uh, that don't build back to that system, right? They the call it ROM, random acts of marketing. <laughs> I like that. I haven't heard that. <laughs> it's yeah. like the equivalent of doing things half-assed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So I think those are some of the caveats. And I think, I guess the, the, the TLDR there is like, early on, you try to find somebody who, who has gone, he's done the zero to one thing and can bring you there faster so that you can get to the right leadership higher um, without, you know, spending whatever that number, you know, 200K and a bunch of equity to try to bring somebody in who then, you know, has never actually like walked through that step. I love it. It's been a super strategic and tactical episode. Is there anything you want to share before we wrap up here today? I guess if there's, you know, if there's founders out there who are trying to figure out the zero to one process, we'd love to chat with you. Um, you check out brendandell.com find us there if you want we can share one fun fact about you before we end off the episode usually i ask it in the beginning of the show oh goodness one fun fact i don't know where to go with that one uh okay here's something that nobody knows and then is going to be too much information when i was in elementary school i was uh, stabbed with a lead-based pencil in my leg on accident by a friend and i'm nearly 40 years old and i still have that mark in my leg almost 40 years later so that's something that almost no one knows. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, had a similar experience, but he got shot by his brother, and he still has the oh my god, he still has the bullet uh, in his leg. It got pumped through Jesus. his lungs into his leg, and uh, oh my just... god, that is a lot more severe than mine. <laughs> accidents do mine. happen, so yeah, you gotta appreciate oh every day and i really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to join me Thanks are you a linkedin me. guy can we share your linkedin profile in the mix yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah they can find me on linkedin i'm also on uh, instagram at the brendan dell um and the podcast is on youtube and spotify his po podcast under a billion dollar tech on youtube and spotify and iTunes and all of the other spots. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Brendan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for tuning into the Founder Pack podcast. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Ron, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.